Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. There's been recent dramatic growth in the number of nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. The number of NPs has more than tripled in the last decade, while the number of PAs has almost doubled. Yet, due to particular billing practices in Medicare, it can be difficult to know how much care these clinicians are providing. That means there's a lot we don't know about access and quality related to this critical part of the healthcare workforce. How we bill for nurse practitioner and physician assistant services and the implications of those practices is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Ativ Marotra, professor of healthcare policy in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School and a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Marotra and co-authors published a paper in the June 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the prevalence of indirect billing, where care provided by a PA or NP is billed under the supervising physician. They found about 11 million instances of Medicare indirect billing in 2010 and 30 million in 2018 and estimate that eliminating indirect billing would have saved Medicare more than $190 million. We'll discuss these findings and more in today's episode. Dr. Marotra, welcome to the program. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Alan. Yeah, it's great to learn about this part of the workforce that doesn't get nearly as much attention as others. Uh, So you're a clinician. Why don't you begin just by helping our listeners understand what is the role of a nurse practitioner, an NP, or a physician assistant, a PA? No, it, it can be very confusing for the average American because, you know, increasingly they're seeing an NP or PA, but when we ask people, understandably, they're a little unsure exactly what the difference is, and for, you know, good reason. You know, so first, just to acknowledge the facts that, you know, they're for NPs, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, NPs and PAs, physician assistants, really different levels of training in terms of how long it takes um, and also kind of the basis of it in the sense that nurse practitioners come from a basis of the nursing background and additional training on top of that, while physician assistants take a very different track. I'm going to speak about some generalities and how they differ, uh, but first to acknowledge there's a lot of overlap and, you know, who, like the same care can be provided by a PA and NP and MD. So I understand why it gets confusing. But in general, you're going to see more nurse practitioners in primary care, while physician assistants play a larger role in specialty care. Uh, in general, we see that nurse practitioners are likely to practice a little bit more independently, um, and that's also reflected in something we'll come back to, I believe, scope of practice laws. Um, but again, there's a lot of overlap, and the same problem, the American, uh, American. I don't know if you're worried that you have a sinusitis, you could have an NP, an MD, or a PA taking care of you, and you may not be able to tell the difference. Well, I really appreciate you giving that overview. And I will say, as a patient and as a parent, I have interacted with all of these and not always known why, other than sometimes it's just who's available. Um, And the care quality has been uh, outstanding, regardless of the letters after someone's name. Uh, Okay, so let's turn more to the focus of your paper, which is looking at billing. Um, So there's this provision in Medicare that has to do with how nurse practitioners and physician assistants bill. Uh, Can you explain how this works? 
Yeah, so there's a little bit of a wonky issue, uh, but we'll get into it because uh, I think it's interesting and may reflect some confusion on the uh, side of a of a patient. So you can go, uh, a nurse practitioner can uh, take care, or a physician assistant can take care of a patient, and as they would if they were a physician, go and bill the health plan or bill Medicare and say, I took care of Alan Weil, and I did this X, Y, and Z, and please pay me. And that's what we would call the normal way or direct billing. The One of the... Th- uh, issues is that uh, many decades ago, Medicare set up another uh, form of billing, which is called indirect billing or incident to billing. In this setup, the same thing happens. The physician assistant says takes care of Alan Weil and treats the patient, but the bill is not submitted by the physician assistant. It's submitted under the supervising physician. And the idea here is that the physician assistant has assistance from uh, the physician and to reimburse for those oversight issues and uh, time that it might require, uh, they will submit under the supervising physician um, as opposed to themselves. Beyond being sort of a wonky in the depth of how things are built, it also has some implications in terms of money. If a physician assistant bills directly to take care of Alan Weil, they get paid 85 cents on the dollar as if the supervising physician does. So it's, in other words, a difference of 15% in terms of the payment that goes to the practice. Okay, so we have this slightly quirky situation, but you know, I realize, and anyone who listens to the podcast knows, we make a lot of decisions in healthcare based on claims. We have quality metrics, we have access standards, all kinds of things. So this division between one kind of clinician billing sometimes one way and sometimes another way could really hide information we need to have to figure out what's going on. Um, You did something really interesting in this paper to try to figure out how much of this was happening. Someone who wants to get deep in the methods should probably read the paper, but it's so cool. I think our listeners would want to understand it because finding little tricks like this is, is one of the great things about good research. So how'd you figure it out? Alan, just to emphasize what you said, we've been having, we know there's a lot of this indirect billing, but no one has any sense of how often it's happening. And so, and that really reflects the idea then we're a lot of the care that's being provided by NPs and PAs was not known. And so that's really the, the hole we're trying to fill. So what we tried to do in this, and look, we'll, we can get into this later if we want to, it's not perfect, but what we did is we said, look, when you when I'm picking on you, Alan, and when Alan Weil goes and sees the uh, PA and the PA prescribes, say, an antibiotic, the prescription there on that antibiotic has the PA's name and identifier. But if it's submitted as indirect billing, the bill, the visit goes under the supervising physician. We find those situations. We look for the visits that were associated with the prescription, and we find when there's a strange discrepancy. And when there are those discrepancies, we say, you know what? That's probably indirect billing. And we started counting up those visits as a way of then identifying indirect billing. Um, and then we also found, obviously, the bills that were submitted directly by the NPs or PAs. And this is based on an assumption that I think is reasonable, that prescriptions, they're pretty common. They're, there's nothing that would suggest that these visits are 
totally different than the other kinds of visits that might occur without a prescription. So tell us what you found, this hidden phenomenon, how much of it's going on. Maybe in retrospect, not surprising, but there's a lot of indirect billing in the U.S. healthcare system. Um, If we went back into the early part of our data, 2010, over half the uh, visits by NPs and PAs were billed indirectly. Um, it, that's that percentage falls over time, but it's a lot. And another way of framing that is, I think you said in your introduction, um, about 11 million visits were billed indirectly in 2010, um, and over 30 million in 2018. So it's a huge fraction of both the care that NPs and PAs are receiving, but also a very large number of visits that Medicare beneficiaries are having uh, at a total cost of over a uh, billion dollars. So there's so many different directions to go with this. Uh, let's start with one, which is you mentioned earlier on scope of practice, which determines how much a clinician can provide uh, without being directly under someone else's supervision. Can you say a little bit about the relationship between state scope of practice laws, which is where those are set, and the frequency of this incident to or indirect billing? Physician assistant scope or practice laws are pretty consistent across the U.S. However, and I'm sure health affairs readers know, NP and nurse practitioner scope or practice laws are an extremely controversial topic, as well as a large amount of variation across the U.S. We wanted to know whether there was an association between a state's nurse practitioner scope of practice laws, or NP scope of practice laws, and the use of indirect billing. And the idea here is pretty straightforward. In a state that has pretty restrictive laws for NPs and says, look, they have to practice within a, with a physician collaboration or supervision, then they're likely to be billing indirectly. And that's what we found. Uh, we found that in states with more restrictive NP scope of practice laws, there was a greater uh, uh, use of indirect billing. Uh, uh, it depends on how you compare it, but compared to uh, states with full scope of practice laws, there was a 10 percentage point difference. I'm eager to talk to you about some of the additional findings, uh, particularly some of the implications and choices practices are making. Uh, we'll have that conversation after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Ativ Marotra about indirect billing by nurse practitioners and physician assistants for office visits in the Medicare program. Before the break, we were talking about how frequent it is for this indirect or incident to billing to occur. And uh, we were talking about the relationship with scope of practice. I, I want to flip to a slightly different way of looking at this, which is you noted earlier on that if you bill directly, you get 85 cents on the dollar. So at the level of the practice or the clinician, you're kind of leaving money on the table when you do that. When I look at the results in the paper we published of yours, you show us this uh, bimodal distribution in essence. You have practices that really primarily do direct billing. You have practices that primarily do indirect billing. So if you're sitting at the practice level, how do you think about this choice? Why might you go one direction versus the other when there's this reimbursement difference? 
Yeah, it's a fascinating question um, that I think is really merits a lot more exploration uh, about why the heck are you leaving money on the table? But we can hypothesize, and we uh, I think it's imp- uh, I, I think some explanations make a lot of sense. It's important to acknowledge that indirect billing brings with it some administrative costs. For there are these rules and regulations, and you know I'm not sure how often a, a average physician or practice knows all the rules, but if they really want to follow the rules. Uh, uh, or at least Medicare's rules, it can only be used in certain cases. There, the supervising physician has to be on site. Um, it can only be used for certain types of visits. So they and they have to make sure that the you know the phys- a physician has seen the patient previously. That brings with it a lot of annoyance and pain. And also, look, if you're a doc, uh, like you know, in my in the primary care practice I was previously part of, we had a nurse practitioner working side by side with us. I'm the supervising doc today. Who's the supervisor? Is it you, Alan, today? You know, there's also that aspect of it and also some discomfort like uh, that why I'm in charge of I'm supervising, so I'm somewhat held responsible. So that's the administrative as well as the legal slash, you know, comfort level. And for those reasons, you could find a practice saying, look, this isn't worth it to us. It's not a lot of money. Let's just have our nurse practitioners and physician assistants just bill directly. So that's my sense of it based on my personal experience as well as, you know, um, what I've seen out there. But again, I think this would be something really fascinating for us to explore in more depth. Yes, and it ties into all of these broader topics around payment. And I guess since I have the rare opportunity to speak with you, I I want to make sure we go beyond the boundaries just of this paper. But first of all, this is a Medicare policy. And the 85% rule, if it's associated solely with the additional administrative burden, you'd say, well, it's just sort of a a wash. But but presumably it it isn't in the end a wash. There's some controversy over the policy itself. So if we could just step back and say, uh, what are the implications? You talk about how much money Medicare could save if it eliminated this, presumably moving everyone to the 85 cents on the dollar side. Can you just say a little more about sort of what are the what's the policy context and policy controversy? Yeah, so I think there are really two aspects of this. Um, the first is tracking, quality um, issues, and then there's the actual dollar amount. The argument against indirect billing, as you said in your intro, is that it's hard for us to know how much care is the average American getting from a nurse practitioner because of this. Issues of quality measurement, payment systems, all those kinds of things, when you don't know who's actually taking care of the patient, that makes it more complicated. And for that reason, uh, for example, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission or MedPAC has recommended, let's just get rid of this um, and just have, if a clinician sees a patient, bill as the clinician. It has a, a, it seems straightforward from that perspective. There's also the other aspect of it, which is the money. An equally controversial question is, why the heck do we pay nurse practitioners, physician assistants, 85 cents on the dollar? Where did 85% come from? You know, Obviously, uh, I think it's probably clear just based on the percentage that it just chosen out of thin air a little bit. And is also emphasized that if nurse practitioners um, are providing, say, equal quality care as a physician, shouldn't they be paid the same amount? And that also is part of the controversy. So certainly from 
if I'm on the federal side as medi- running the Medicare program, there's some attractiveness to getting rid of indirect billing on the money side, as you alluded to, save a hundred, about almost $200 million per year. But that isn't necessarily paired with that. You could get rid of indirect billing and pay 100%, 100 cents on the dollar, and there would be no savings. It would just be on the quality and administrative side. So those are some of the policy discussion and debate that's ongoing right now about this issue. And we're hopeful that this paper can inform that debate because previously, my sense was that we didn't really know, was this a big deal? Was this a little deal? And now we have some numbers to uh, at least inform that debate. Yeah, it's really helpful uh, because, as you say, w- without any information on the scale and the growth, it's it's easy to make a mistake here uh, on the policy side. A- as I listen to you, I'm struck by how much of what we talk about in healthcare today is moving away from fee-for-service, uh, moving towards bundles and moving towards outcome-based payment models. Uh, in some sense, this topic feels a little bit like a relic. Like, why are we focusing on this? If you just bundle, then it doesn't matter who performs the service. What matters is what comes out on the other end for patients. Is that, uh, is that your sense here? Or is this a policy that, that has importance even in the context of a, a alternative payment model discussion? Yeah, uh, I, a really uh, important point. Um, I appreciate you bringing this up. Um, what I say over and over again in this context with indirect billing or incident to billing, as well as in a lot of other contexts, which is that alternative payment models are built on a, built on a fee-for-service backbone. They're built on that backbone. And to the degree that the fee-for-service system that we have in the United States is biased, paying some providers more or less and incorrectly. And this is true, again, of nurse practitioners and physician assistants, but procedures and surgeons and dermatologists and every other kind of care and, you know, uh, you know, outpatient hospital setting, et cetera. To the degree that there's bias there, it's complicating and undermining those alternative payment models. And so my message to policymakers is you gotta, you can't just that mantra of, oh, this is a moot point. This is an old point is not correct. We need uh, as much effort on fixing the fee-for-service system to make those alternative payment models more successful. So this is how I know you're a doctor. You say uh, these alternative models are built on a fee-for-service backbone. I say they're built, <laughs> I, I say they're built on a fee-for-service chassis. I'm not an uh, auto mechanic, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you, your, your medical training is showing here. Um, so I think that's a, such an important point is that we, we, even as we modify from, the from matters a lot. And uh, that's really what you've said here. We focused a lot on the provider side, the billing side. Can we talk a little bit about the consumer side? Um, this has some implications for uh, consumers, maybe not uh, the most monumental choice, but um, can you say a little more about that? As you said, Alan, this is a little bit of a wonky kind of uh, billing rule, kind of, uh, health policy thing, but I do think it has some implications for patients. The first is it's kind of confusing to go see a nurse practitioner and get a bill in the mail from a doctor who you're like, who is that doctor? I have never met that doctor. And so uh, there's a, a aspect of that, which is that... Um, we already have a very, very confusing billing system in the United States, and this exacerbates that issue. It's also some money uh, on the table here. Um, if you're have, let's say a uh, a doctor's visit costs two hundred dollars, 
and a nurse practitioner visit costs $170, 85 cents on the dollar. And you have a high deductible health plan. Who's paying that difference? You are as a patient, um, at least if it's before you hit your deductible. And so it also has um, some cost implications for patients, which are important. So whenever someone does uh, research, you know, the results are what they are, and then more, more research is necessary, uh, is one of the conclusions. Uh, you found, I think, a, a, a piece of data that's very important for policy here. Um, what more do we need to know? What more would you want to know? Or is this just sort of, it stands alone and it tells us what it needs to tell us, and now it's time for the policymakers to step in? These are the key, some of the key pieces of information that are needed for that policy debate. Um, you know, there are some things that I think need further exploration. We've already touched upon this issue of why the heck are practices leaving money on the table? And I, I hypothesize, but we need to understand that. And what are the implications in terms of revenue? It's always easy to say in healthcare, healthcare policy, we're going to cut spending, but somebody has to have a cut. And that's going to be physician practices. Who are those physician practices and what are the implications for them? I think it's really important. Another aspect of this is, and you touched upon it uh, uh, just really briefly, which is on the commercial side, you know, the average physician practice gets revenue from Medicare and, you know, the big health plans and local health plans and Medicaid. How does this intersect with those? I think is going to be another aspect of this, because again, this paper focused on data from the Medicare program, but this has implications uh, across all pairs. You know, and you brought up something that I hadn't really focused on before, which is that scope of practice is quite standardized for physician assistants, but quite variable for nurse practitioners. And I wonder, under acknowledging that the roles they play in the health system are different, I do wonder if there's something we could learn from that, that, that uh, the variability in one and the more consistency in the other. I, I don't know quite where I'd go with that, but, but I, it was an interesting uh, observation given uh, the changes. You know, I'm, I'm really struck overall as I read this uh, in the context of other things that we publish, this growing role of clinicians who are not non-MDs um, as we change how we deliver care, as we face shortages in areas like uh, mental health and substance use. Um, of course, there have been controversies over uh, provider levels in oral health. It just feels to me like our understanding of the of the workforce and how we pay that workforce really needs a, a shift uh, away from what, in my sense, has been this quite overwhelming focus on on the physician. Uh, does that ring true to you? Yeah, no. It, our results highlight that there's a lot more care being provided by NPs and PAs than we had previously recognized, and. Just to echo or to build upon what you said, Alan, it strikes me is that for so many decades, the average American, when they talk about their usual provider, it's always been primary care physician or specialist physician. I mean, the rates of indirect billing that we see here and just the overall growth in visits highlights that fast forward 10 years from now, the average clinician that a patient has seen for an ear infection to some, you know, uh, I don't know, high blood pressure or whatever other problem they have could be a non-physician. So it's really going to challenge that idea. I also think it's important to acknowledge this is a very unique American phenomenon. 
We, when we look across the world, uh, we do not see uh, the role of um, NPs and PAs to any degree what we see here in the United States. And so we're really on the forefront of using a, a much broader mix of clinicians. You know, if we were to go back, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was a really strong distinction made in at least my world of physician practice between DOs and MDs, doctors of osteopathic medicine versus medical doctors. Now in 2022, I don't really see much of a distinction. I, I The other day, one of my cl clinical colleagues was next to me and I looked at his, you know, his badge. I'm like, oh, hey, you're a DO. I had no idea. You know, it never occurred to me. And I wonder in 20, 30 years from now, we'll, we'll, we'll have the same thing where um, I look next door to me, next to me and I'll see a nurse practitioner and I would have no idea that they're a nurse practitioner versus an MD. That's a possibility. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. That's very interesting. A great place for us to wrap up. It's uh, a pleasure to be able to publish your work and to have this conversation. Uh, Dr. Marotra, thank you so much for being my guest on Health Policy. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>